It's something of a paradox to me that Jesus could be as profoundly revered as he is in so many parts of the world today, even by people that don't call themselves Christian, even by people that don't call themselves believers in God. The name of Jesus is a a positive one. He still shows up on the covers of our magazines. He gets talked about in our coffee shops. He's a model for so many people of what it means to live a beautiful life. And yet the people of his time crucified him. (laughs) Why is that? How is it that they responded to him in the way they did? What did he say that was just so upsetting that religious and secular people alike finally figured out they needed to have this guy dead? What was it about him that could make the crowds that cheered him as he came through the gates on Palm Sunday turn completely to call for his crucifixion and to cheer his pain? If Jesus was simply the gentle Jesus, the gentle genius that he gets portrayed in so many places to be, then how could this have happened? As I've thought about it and read about it through the years, I've come to the conviction that there really is only one logical explanation for that. Jesus was a lot more than meek and mild. Jesus was a a lot more than a poetic philosopher. He was, in a sense, the light of heaven hitting the earth like a cosmic laser beam and plowing up a, a furrow of dramatic proportions. Jesus made claims and he gave commands that left people, frankly, undone. He named realities that a whole lot of other people sought to bury altogether and worked pretty hard to keep under wraps. He broke barriers. He battered bastions that that no one else had had the nerve to assault in quite the same way that Jesus did. He was a dangerous man. He was not politically correct. He was not socially tame. He was not religiously pious. He was a dangerous man because he came in the name of a God who is dangerously good, whose goodness shakes and shatters many of the less good things of this world. So what I want to ask you during this Lenten series, and we'll ask this a number of times over the course of these weeks to come, is... Do you know this Jesus? Do you know that Jesus that I've been talking about? And how has he impacted your life? How does it show that that you are a disciple, a follower, an imitator of this Jesus? I want to uh, suggest to you that in many ways, Jesus has become domesticated in our time. Uh, His complexity and the challenge that he offers to us has gotten reduced in our time to the point where, for a lot of us, he no longer really disturbs us, no longer really disrupts us, no longer, in that sense, really disciples us, shapes us to live the alternative kingdom that he came to represent. And I think some of the things that he said, one of the things he said most profoundly today, which we're going to look at today, is represented by some of these passages of scripture uh, from the lips uh, of his own mouth. He says, no one can serve two masters. 
you got to make a choice. You can't have more than one master. There's going to be one primary leader in your life. You must decide who that is. Every kingdom, he said, divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household that gets divided against itself will not stand. That ought to be... That ought to shake us up when we think about how much is divided today. Whoever is not with me, said Jesus, is against me. Actually, whoever's not really going with me is actually working against my cause. There's not a neutral place here. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In short, Jesus is saying, get off the fence. Now, I think that's a disturbing and disruptive idea. I think it's, it's hard to face a Jesus like that for the simple reason that we live in a world where fence-sitting has become pretty commonplace and, and comfortable. Um, for good or for ill, our world has grown more than okay with partial commitments, with um, hedged bets, with trial periods, with associate memberships. We like to feel part of the game, but we also enjoy the safety of the stands. Uh, people will tend to crow uh, about heroism and victories for their side when their team is winning, and then sort of disavow responsibility when the team isn't winning. We often want good friendships and, and marriages, but we often avoid facing the sin patterns that if we did face them might make them great, uh, great relationships. We want our kids to be spiritually vital. We're just, our hearts are so warmed when we see uh, an assembly like we saw a short while ago right up here. We want our kids to know Christ and grow mature in Christ, but we also want them on the traveling team. Right? We also want them to be racking up the other things of life that might actually eclipse their engagement with local church. We want a sane, healthy life for ourselves, but we also want one that's packed with all of the adrenaline of pace and possessions and all the stuff of success. We, we want both of these things. I heard a story about a, a man named Homer who finally worked up the courage to ask the girl of his dreams to marry him. And, 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 and he approached her and he knelt down in front of her and he looked up into her eyes and he said, his name was Homer, by the way. His name was, he said to her, Sue, you know I love you. And, 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 I, and I know I'm not, you know, I know I'm not, you know, smart like Tom and, and I'm not, you know, good looking like Tom and I'm not, maybe not successful like Tom, but Sue, I love you with all my heart. Would you marry me? And Sue was just moved by the, this display of such devotion and affection. She said, well, Homer, you know I love you. But can you tell me a little bit more about Tom? <laughs> I think we do this. I think we do this in life. I think we do this in lots of places. And I think we do it even in our relationship with God. Uh, to borrow from the title of an old uh, hymn, uh, we sing, take my life and let it be. <laughs> you can have my life, Lord, but let, 
certain of these things just be as they are. We struggle with the consecration part. The hymn title, hymn verse really says, take my life and let it be consecrated all to thee. We struggle with that. We, we have a hard time going all in, as my Texas Hold'em friends would say. We, we really struggle with that. It's not that we're not interested in God. We are. And I, please don't misunderstand me. I know you're interested in God. You wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be in this conversation if you weren't part of like a, an unusual percentage of people that are, that are really committed to trying to grow spiritually and in Christ particularly. Uh, but, but I will confess, because I find it in myself, sometimes we're a little bit wary of full investment, aren't we? Uh, I came across this... Um, a little bit of prose from an author by the name of Wilbur Rees that sort of suggested this, and I'm paraphrasing. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love that person or change me dramatically uh, I want inspiration, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Can I just have $3 worth of God, please? Now, that's hyperbole, okay? I, I, I'm not saying that's you. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you're a shallow person, nor am I, I hope, a shallow person. But, but I think we can slip into coming at God in this somewhat half-hearted way and the things of God. And, and that's a challenge because Jesus makes it so clear in his own teaching that he's not interested in, in a life of partial investments from us. He's not interested in having divided loyalties in us because they don't produce the kind of fruit that he really wants to produce for our blessing and for the sake of the world and his glory. And, and I think, truthfully, religious leaders sometimes sell that short. You know, we're so concerned not to offend people. We just want to keep people consuming what it is that we're offering, and so we keep trying to put it in the most positive, doable kind of light. Uh, and and, and in fact, there are whole religious industries today that are basically built on trying to keep it from getting too difficult to follow Jesus. Uh, we think that he we give the impression that Jesus really just wants some fine-tuning of our personalities. He's not really interested in changing a whole lot. He's content so long as we're spending time and money on him on Sundays, even if our real affection is for Tom the rest of the week. You know, the various Toms that we could easily be distracted by, seduced by. Gordon MacDonald, one of the great Christian authors of the last 50 years, puts it this way. When the crowd got too large, Jesus would sharpen the blade of his teaching. He, he would start getting tougher about what it meant. He would make it clear that there was a dramatic cost to discipleship. It was almost as if he were saying, the size of this crowd here suggests to me that you have not heard me plainly enough, or else you wouldn't all be here. So let me give it to you 
another way. In fact, I think of a, a moment in the story of Jesus in which he's surrounded by a huge crowd. They've come for the feeding of the 5,000 and they're, they're very interested in what he has to say. And, and then Jesus starts to talk about the way of the cross ahead and about the need to, to, to deny self and take up one's cross and follow after him. And the crowd just melted away. I wish I'd thought to put this verse up for you. Uh, but basically, at the end of this little conversation Jesus has, there's only 12 people left. Just the original 12 disciples are left behind. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, will you also leave me? Will you also go? Now that you know what's involved here. And Peter, at one of his best moments, replies, but Lord, to whom would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. He still does. But the pathway to that life is more challenging than sometimes we're told about or it gets sold to us. The pathway to that kind of life involves a level of investment and of commitment that not just everybody is going to jump at. Gordon McDonald concludes his observations by saying, when Jesus finished restating his message, many would then leave him because they finally understood that no one can remain in the presence of Christ and be merely a very nice person. He's not interested in shaping nice people. He's interested in shaping kingdom people, holy people, beautiful people world-changing kinds of people. So that's why Jesus says the radical things he does at times. Um, that's why he goes, like it almost feels like he goes hyperbolic. He is going hyperbolic on us at various times. Uh, to the Christians at Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, how I wish you were one or the other, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Wow, these people are just going to church, right? They were just trying to follow after Jesus. You know, and then they had some challenges in their day with persecution. like. And Jesus still says, you're not in it. You're not all in it. In other places, Jesus described life with God in the following uh, metaphors. He says it's about leaving your family. It's about getting out of a safe boat. It's about quitting your current job. It's about selling your possessions. It's about denying yourself. And if you get the manuscript on our website of this message, you can get the scripture text behind every one of those characterizations. I mean, when Jesus said these things to people, they went, what? What? Now we know Jesus was not literally trying to say to people, Get rid of all possessions, get rid of all family, get rid of, you know, he, because in other places he honors those things. And he talks about how we uh, make uh, productive use of all of those things. He's simply calling the question of whether we're going to define and pursue all of those other good values in the world's way or in the kingdom's way. He's simply saying, who comes first? Where or where are you putting your feet down? 
Uh, who, who or what do you really love primarily? What's the ground you're consistently planting your life in? Uh, what sort of fruit is getting produced from that ground? Or are you still trying to sit on the fence? Are you tr- still trying to have it all? This is what he does with this, these provocative teachings. Now, I know, because um, I can feel it in my own self as I say those things, that this is, oh, this is when you hear people talking like this, um, there's, this, there's this some part of you, at least for me, that just wants to go like, whoa, this is like way too intense. This gets me tired, you know, just thinking about this level of commitment. Do you not know how many things I'm committed to and trying to, to manage? And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. I understand that. Well, Lent is the season when when followers of Jesus have traditionally given themselves permission to try and slow down a little bit and, and, and to let go of certain kinds of things that have maybe been occupying them so that they can reflect, so that they can really take stock of where they are, where they're sitting, what line they've been walking, what investments they've been making, what loyalties they've been maybe dividing, and in that process of reflection, begin to discern some ways of walking in an even more Jesus-like way. And so I want to invite you to do that with me over these next 40 days, the 40 days of Lent leading up to Holy Week. I want to invite you to think about where you're sitting, where you are, where you want to go, And Christians have historically done this, have walked this journey of Lent by taking on one or more uh, what they call spiritual disciplines. Um, The disciplines, or we call around here, we call them soul training practices, are are ways of grounding your life on God's side of the fence more intentionally. Uh, They're ways of planting ourselves in the good soil of Scripture, of the Christian tradition in a more intentional way and seeing what kind of better fruit might get produced when we do that. Uh, And so we've made it easy. If you're interested in in finding resources to help with adopting a spiritual discipline, um, if you go to the Lenten devotionals part of our website or the um, new Christ Church Connect app, uh, if you go to the, uh, you'll see a little banner at the top of the, if you just scroll past the banners at the top of the page. You'll see a Lenten devotional one. Just tap on that. It'll open right up to a resource page. And we've given you some helps there if you're interested in this. There's a wonderful audio devotional that, that comes out every single week that you could be using. Uh, there's a, an, a link to a book written by a former pastor of our church, Adele Calhoun, called uh, The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. It's got like 60 disciplines, and they're made really simple and clear and doable there. Um, I'm using something called the examine or the examine, which is just a spiritual practice of at the end of the day, reflecting on the day past, where God was speaking, where God was working, how I responded to that. Um, And we've even provided a link to that discipline uh, on that uh, page. Um, but, But I invite you to try a practice or two, experiment with some and just see what comes from it. I think you're going to find that blessing comes from it. Uh, and, I, and I think of three blessings in particular that I believe often proceed when people um, take up a spiritual uh, discipline. For one thing, 
The spiritual disciplines lead to greater integrity, greater, greater integration, integrity in our lives. Um, they, they, they help to connect what we've been saying we believe with the, with the way we actually live and feel. Um, to use the metaphor of Jesus, uh, they help us see where our lives have gotten shifted off the foundation of the rock that he said he wanted us to build on. That, that becomes clearer to us as we practice spiritual disciplines. We go, oh, I sort of got off beam there for a while. They, they begin to display for us where we've gotten divided, where our house has gotten divided. And through the disciplines, God starts to, to realign us uh, more fully to his purposes. Uh, there's greater integrity. Secondly, spiritual disciplines uh, often transform our character and our conduct without us even realizing it. They begin to shape, God's spirit begins to move through us through these disciplines and our character and our conduct begins to change and that leads to even greater influence on other people. Uh, we start coming at our life and our relationships differently. Uh, to be ruthlessly blunt, the world's got plenty of people who are, who are merely ordinary in the way they handle. Resources, conflict, all the rest of that. Um, the world has got millions of fragmented people, of people that are being driven around on their own power, their own ego by anxiety, fear, anger. I mean, check me if you don't think our world today is running like that, right? We've got a lot of ordinary uh, people in that sense. I think that God wants something even more beautiful and good for us and, and from us in this world. And in fact, we know Jesus has said, I want my people to be different. My people will be like salt and light in this world. They will be a wonderful influence in this world. And I think that if we're going to be that kind of influence, it's gonna be because we change something. It's because we, we, we took more, we gave more energy to investing ourselves in the kind of practices that, that make us different in the way we come at conflict and the way we come at relationships and at the use of resources. Um, and so if we want greater influence, and I, and I just quick show of hands, how many of you would like to give, be a great influence in the life of your children, your friends, your grandchildren? Um, how many of you would wanna do that? Yeah, we all would. This is something we're united in. Well, then one of the ways of, of building that greater fruit of influence is the practice uh, of a spiritual discipline. So, integrity, influence. Thirdly, I believe that the ultimate fruit of spiritual disciplines is greater joy. Now, that's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, it, how many of you noticed it was a beautiful day, relatively speaking, yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> It was, right? It was pretty nice. And in Chicago, we have to be relative when it comes to beautiful days. Uh, it was gorgeous yesterday, and I went out for my first run of the new season. I will tell you that in, when I was 52, I had a heart attack, and I discovered running two years later when I ran the World Vision, uh, Team World Vision Marathon, and it was an awesome, wonderful, glorious um, adventure for me. Um, so I still feel this sense, and I've done that a couple of times, that marathon. I still feel this sense. I should, on a nice day, I should get out and run. I went out running yesterday. It was not joyful. <laughs> Why? 
I'm out of shape. It's been a long winter. You know, the treadmill has not beckoned me quite the number of times that I'm sure it's the treadmill's fault that it did not. Uh, you know, but as I unwound and as I kept going, you know, the experience began to feel different and began to feel good, and then it began to feel wonderful to be out there. Um, I had a dear friend uh, in this church's life. Some of you knew him. Not everybody got the chance to. His name was Bob Galehood. Bob was a pastor of Christ Church for many, many years. Uh, he was a remarkable guy. He was almost like a, a Buddhist monk in his tranquility and placidity and gentleness. But he was also a, like, above black belt martial arts expert. And there was always this sense, if you were in conversation with Bob, that he would just go like this, mm, and then he would tear you apart with his hands if he could. He never did that. He never did that. But I remember Bob saying at one point, that um, if you asked an Olympian standing on the metal platform how she spells the path to joy, she would spell it D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-E. And Bob had developed that placidity he had and that ability to do those martial arts through a long set of practices of discipline in his life. In the Bible, the writer of the Hebrews uh, uh, speculates on why Jesus disciplined himself in the face of temptations, why he disciplined himself to climb on a cross for the sake of other people, knowing what that pain was going to be like. And the writer of the Hebrews said it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father. It was for the joy of fulfilling his mission with integrity and knowing the influence that mission would have on other people throughout history. He disciplined himself for the sake of the joy. Would you consider disciplining yourself for the sake of the joy that can come as the fruit of your labors? So let me just boil it down and move towards a close by saying some things you may know, but maybe in a fresh way. Jesus came to earth. He came and proclaimed the kingdom of God. He declared to us what ultimate reality looks like, and he called us to leave behind this broken, not working so well reality, and live by the law and the principles and practices of this greater kingdom. Jesus came to do this, and even to give his life up on a cross, in order to give us integrity, in order to restore the integration that God had intended between us and God, between us and our neighbors, between us and our very best self. That's why Jesus taught and lived the way he did and died on the cross was to reestablish the original integrity God intended. Then he called together an amazing group of ordinary people and invited them to go on a, on a pathway of discipline with them. And, and we called that little community of people that chose to do it, even though many people blew that off, that group we call the church. And that early church he then sent out to exert a greater influence for his kingdom upon the world. And because they did it, and God was in it, it altered history. We're sitting here together today 
because those 12 people, when the crowd had melted away, stayed on the path of discipline. And Jesus said that he wanted us to do likewise and to serve him and represent him and exert influence for him in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth, he said. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus said. One of the last things he said before he went to his crucifixion. He said, I'm the vine, I'm the source, but you're the branches, you're the distribution system that I have. And if you'll remain in me, connected deeply to me, rooted in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit, fruit that will last. That's what I want you to experience, the joy of fruit bearing. And one of the greatest fruits of dedicating ourselves to him fully is joy, a joyfulness, a hope that can transcend trials and tribulations and that just keeps on going in the most beautiful way. And then he says in his last words before, almost last words before he leaves his disciples, I have told you all this so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. I have been meeting over the last several weeks on Wednesday mornings here in the church building with some of the busiest people I know. Uh, they are people, a group of about seven people who uh, hold positions of like huge crushing responsibility in major organizations, healthcare, uh, restaurants, finance, uh, legal system, just, just people, they are, they are some of the most... Um, demanded of people I, I can think of. Uh, but they have chosen to come early in the morning uh, to the church building to, to study a Christian curriculum and that is all about how God shapes spiritual leaders because they don't want to be divided. They don't want to be fragmented. They don't want to be pulled every which way. They want to walk the way of Jesus. And so they keep making this investment. They prioritize this discipline of Christian community because they want greater integrity and greater influence and greater joy. What do you want? What do you want for yourself? Because in these days to come, your life can be marked with greater integrity, influence, and joy. It can, for sure. But if you want this, you have to stop if this is your story. I don't know if it is, but you may have gotten overly content with, with being hot for him some weeks and cold other weeks, uh, of being a divided house where you give him access to these rooms and these parts of your life, but say pretty much, these ones are off limit, Jesus. You can't renovate those. You're gonna to have to face that reality if that's going on because the message of Jesus is you must get off the fence. You must come with me. You must ground your life in me. I like to think that if I was one of the first people hearing that call, that I'd have responded. I'd like to think that if I was there in that story in Matthew 12, actually I didn't get a chance to read that for sake of time this morning, but there's a story in which Jesus heals a man who's been demon-possessed and restores him to new life. 
and proclaims God's love and character in that place. I'd like to think that if I'd seen that, the way the Spirit of God moved and spoke through Jesus and changed this guy's life for good and gave him now an integrity and influence and joy that he could never have had otherwise, I'd have said with all the people there, and this is what the text says, could this be the son of David, they said, which is code language for, could this be the Messiah? With this power, is this the Messiah? I like to think that if, they, if I'd seen it and heard it and watched it, I'd have followed that day. I'd have thrown away other things and gone after Jesus. I'd have gotten myself involved with that circle of disciples that were following after him. I've taken some next step to go further with him as I'm inviting all of us to do in this Latin season. Some next step. I'd like to think that. But let me confess this. Given how comfortable I sometimes get with my divided life, my compartmentalized life, my diversified commitments and securities, I think it's possible that I might not have done those things. I think I might have been like the Pharisees in the story. And the Pharisees in the story attribute the things Jesus is doing to the action of evil. Beelzebub, Matthew 12, 22 and following. They say, oh, he's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub. I might have been, like those Pharisees, so used to sitting high and mighty on my fence, uh, mainly thinking that change, repentance, was for those other people. I might have been like that, that I would have done the one unforgivable thing. And Jesus says in this text from Matthew chapter 12, 22 and following, that there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's against the Holy Spirit. And I've been thinking, what is that sin? What does it mean to sin against the Holy Spirit? And, and it gets portrayed for us in the story because the Pharisees are in the presence of the Spirit of God trying to reach them for good, and they call that spirit evil. If you're going to name what God is trying to do for your good as evil, how could you ever be saved? How could you ever receive the gift? How could you be forgiven? And I think it's just possible that when Jesus said these disturbing things, these challenging things, I might have been like one of those people who called the light darkness and so smug in my niceness and so satisfied with my religion and so content with my current state of righteousness and so irritated at all these other people out there, I might have started thinking to myself, we gotta get rid of this guy. Does anybody else think that this guy is just obnoxious and rude and inappropriate and like overbearing. Let's get rid of him. I think I might have done that. How about you? Because Jesus says to you today as to me, get the heck off the fence. Follow me. I want your total undivided devotion every day of your life. And I think 
No wonder they crucified him. 